Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Gayatri Nair, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the Indra Prastha Institute of Information Technology. We'll be talking about her book, Set Adrift, Capitalist Transformations and Community Politics Along Mumbai's Shores, recently published by Oxford University Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Nair, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, and I really enjoyed the book. Um, but before we delve into the book, we have uh, quite a bit of a convention at the New Books Network, and we like to start by getting to know our, our authors a little bit uh, more closely. So could you tell us about your background as a sociologist? Uh, absolutely. So my sort of relationship with sociology has been uh, quite a long one now. Um, I began by doing my undergraduate degree in sociology at uh, the University of Mumbai. I was at the St. Xavier's College um, and I actually sort of stumbled upon sociology. I wasn't entirely certain what I was getting into when I first decided to study it. But once I did, I fell <laughs> absolutely in love with it and sort of haven't moved past it ever since. So um, I'm just, I've stuck with it. So at, uh, you know, St. Xavier's College, I I majored in sociology. I also studied history and literature alongside, uh, but then I followed it up with a master's in sociology. So I went to um, the Savitrugai Phule Pune University. So that's a city in the state of Maharashtra. And then from there, I moved to Delhi, uh, where I moved to the Jawaharlal Nehru University, and I completed my MPhil and my PhD in sociology. Um, so it's been a long journey. Um, and I, like I said, wasn't entirely sure what I was getting into, uh, but it's been a really <laughs> fruitful journey so far. And I consider myself really lucky to be able to continue that and actually now you know, hold down a position in sociology. So of course, series of precarious jobs would now finally Mm-hmm. Um, I can have that career in sociology. Mm-hmm. Well, we also feel very lucky that <laughs> you stuck <laughs> with this path and came up with this book. And 
you know, I really enjoyed like hearing a bit about the mobilities embedded in your path to sociology yes. <laughs> and how, you know, we, we have to move in these circuitous paths to, um, you know, come up with these books or pieces of writing. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. Um, and, you know, having spoken a little bit about your engagement with sociology, it ended up with set adrift, at least for now. Um, and in the book, you center on the Koli community and fishing in Mumbai to make important contributions on urban life, mobility, gender, and the commons, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, um, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Indian context, could you tell us a little bit about the Koli community in Mumbai? What compelled you to write about them and to conceive of this book? Right. So um, thank you for that question, actually. Um, so the Koli community is actually a, a community that is um, a caste community that has practiced fishing for many centuries now. Uh, they actually consider themselves indigenous to the islands of Mumbai. Um, mm. And you know their, their history is very much sort of intertwined with the history of Mumbai as well. Um, and this is a community that, you know, It's very interesting because the community has been uh, sort of um, seen as a symbol of Mumbai, uh, right? But in maybe the in visual culture and in popular culture. So, you know, you will find the Kohli's uh, almost used as a shorthand symbol for representing Mumbai itself. And in that way, you know, their uh, sort of link with the city is really uh, strong and acknowledged. Uh, but this hasn't really translated into for instance, centering the community in an understanding of Mumbai's economy, of Mumbai's you know, society, of Mumbai's politics. Um, and that is something that I think uh, is what really set me off in thinking about uh, wanting to work on, on this. Um, and of course, I, I also come from uh, you know, a personal background where I have sort of grown up in cities of India. Uh, I have moved quite a bit. I mean, you, you, you sort of figured that out in terms of my educational <laughs> journey. Um, but I've also moved, you know, through my childhood, for instance. And I've always lived in cities. And people speak of, you know, disenchantment with cities, but I've just loved cities all along. Uh, so what was very curious to me was that, you know, here's a city about which so much is written and so much is discussed, you know, both historically and in contemporary writing about it. Um, and yet this community that is so central, um, you know, to the existence of the city um, doesn't seem to be acknowledged. Or when it is, uh, its acknowledgement is, you know, in these very reductive sort of terms of, you know, like I mentioned, a certain kind of uh, symbolism that is associated with them. And a, a representation that is very much tied to a static imagination of the community. Um, so uh, the idea... The idea of this work was very much to kind of center stage the community itself and to, um, you know, think about the city from the, the perspective of the community and, and how they look upon the city, how they look upon their work uh, and what they do. And like I mentioned, they've been a community of um, fishers. So, um, you know, the, the caste community in Mumbai has practiced fishing. Uh, and because of this kind of historical link and, you know, the claims of indigeneity they make, Um, there's also this sort of political assertion about the place that they hold within the city. Uh, and I think that's what made made me very interested in wanting to 
uh, to write of this book and, and wanting to think a little bit more about the Goli community um, in a different way than I had seen otherwise. Uh, so, so that was sort of the, the idea of, of center staging the community. But um, in terms of thinking about what had to be done, I think the focus was on trying to capture in some ways um, the dynamism of the community itself uh, and really not see them as rooted in the past uh, as these kind of figures from the past that that have a haunting presence in Mumbai, but rather to think mm-hmm. about the ways uh, in which they are very much part of, uh, you know, the, the modern sort of city of Mumbai and in all its sort of bustling nature uh, and how their work, their livelihood, um, you know, their lives are intertwined with the city itself. This is fascinating. You know, this is fascinating and I love how You know, you show us that representation and quote-unquote theory of a book are co-constitutive and, you know, are really intertwined. Um, And I want to follow up on that a little bit. Um, So, you know, a central theme of the book is urban transformation and the question of who does the city belong to? So I was wondering if you could speak to this question especially through the work you do of centering the Koli community. Um, what does this recentering, so to speak, um, do to answer these questions? Right. Um, so I think the, again, I mean, the idea was that, um, you know, when we think about urban transformations and who are really the, the subjects of that change and who really gets to participate in that process of change, um, you know, it was very evident and it has been evident for any, you know, any anthropologist, any sociologist who pays close attention to these questions um, that, I mean, of course, there are power relations at work. These are, you know, there are uh, political economic shifts that sort of determine, you know, who can and cannot participate in these kind of processes. Um, and so in thinking about these ideas of urban transformation, I think the the, the notion of um, or the the idea of center staging the Kohli's was to show how part of their struggle, I mean, of course, you know, and you could read it at one level, it's just a struggle over livelihoods. Uh, you could read it as a struggle over retaining control over resources. Um, but I think it, it was much more than that. And it is much more than that. I think really uh, part of that movement and part of that struggle is about an assertion uh, of who that city actually belongs to and and who gets to participate in it and who doesn't. And I think what was very interesting was that, um, you know, so many, uh, you know, conflicting positions emerge um, because you have on the one hand a large process of urban transformation. You have this capital-driven process of urbanization that is literally transforming the terrain of the city. Uh, and you can see this a, a sort of, you know, concerted attempt at pushing out um, you know, or minimalizing the commons, of minimalizing uh, the space for livelihoods that thrive on resources that don't fit within this typical urban imagination. Um, and of course, you know, to, to push out in some ways the Kohli community itself, which has been historically marginalized as well. Um, and you could see in this struggle an assertion to claim the city for themselves. Uh, and simultaneously, one could also see what this you know, conflicting positions led to because there was also in an attempt to assert a claim over the city, you also had movements 
where um, that claim had to be made vis-a-vis another, right? Uh, by by sort of arguing that a right could be secured only by defining in very sort of exclusive terms who the city belongs to, and that meant identifying also who it did not belong to. Um, and and those are the moments that we of tension that we really see within the movement itself, and how it sort of uh, grapples with those kinds of questions. Um, so I think you know when we think about these kind of processes of change. Um, you know, whether we're talking about capitalist transformations, whether we're talking about urban um, changes and shifts that are happening, um, I think it's important to kind of center stage communities that lie on the margins precisely for this, because in, I mean, these processes are, of course, um, in some ways acting out upon them, uh, but they are not passive recipients of it. They respond in all kinds of ways. Um, and I think the ways in which that resistance is built, the way in which an articulation uh, of rights happens, the way in which claim making takes place, um, can tell us a lot about um, the ways in which a politics of the future is also imagined. Um, you know, in terms of how is the urban process really conceived of by by these communities themselves and the coalies in particular. So I think you know, center staging can can enable that kind of understanding, uh, which is what the mm-hmm. attempt was in the book. And, you know, I have to say one of the strengths of this book is, you know, raising all these claims with all um, all their complexities and all the tensions. Um, and this brings me to my question on mobility and tension. Um, so you show us that mobilities are in tension at the site of fishing labor. So you really center labor to... Um, show the dynamic nature of mobility um, and we see that gender, caste, citizenship create frictions between collie women workers and migrant men for example. So how can we understand the relationship between these capitalist transformations and mobility by paying close attention to these tensions or in other words what is at stake um, with sort of putting these tensions in center stage? Right. Uh, so again, thank you for that question because uh, <laughs> it, it really uh, helped me to sort of reflect back on the process of the book. I mean, it's been some years since the research happened. <laughs> uh, so this is useful. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, that again, is enabled via center staging uh, these tensions is really to move apart from, uh, you know, from sort of reductive um, positions that we tend to to take around questions of transformations, mobilities, etc. Uh, and I think this was, you know, the, the field really threw this back at me. It was very evident <laughs> that uh, there is going to be no way to really understand or explore even what is really going on without actually paying closer attention to these tensions. Um, so I think um, what focusing on those tensions allows us to do is to really capture the complexity that is at work. Um, I think I had a, a, a keen sort of attempt uh, I was making throughout to not fall for those kind of, you know, large macro sort of narratives that can sometimes flatten out nuance. But I was also very keen to not sort of get lost in the intricacies of a 
uh, you know, of a particular movement or of a particular um, position to not be able to also notice the larger changes that may have structured and made possible certain choices and, and made certain kinds of positions unavailable. Um, so I think when particularly looking at questions of capitalist transformations, I mean, these are, again, you know, these are broad brush strokes that we can uh, make and, and sort of describe about what is really happening. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it wouldn't allow us to really capture that the fact that essentially we're talking about a process of social change and social change is messy. Social change, um, you know, is absolutely complicated, right? Uh, you, you know, the, the sort of distance that history gives us can make us turn back and, and, you know, in retrospect, look at something and make certain kinds of generalizations from it. But at, when something is playing out, it is absolutely complicated. It is absolutely messy. And sometimes there are no easy sort of positions that, um, you know, that are made available or that are possible. So that is really what I wanted to capture in terms of thinking about this relationship between capitalist transformations and mobilities and to to be able to capture and speak to both levels of, of um, uh, in some senses, processes that were unraveling, mm-hmm. uh, which were leading to a very sort of varied set of responses that were coming in so that you couldn't speak of a singular community response. You couldn't speak of a singular way in which, you know, uh, mobilization was taking place. You couldn't speak of a singular way um, in which resource politics could be characterized. So I think all of that, just to capture the many strands of it, it became necessary to center stage those tensions. And I think um, focusing on those tensions allows us to grapple with the very real process of change at an everyday level and what that really looks like. Mm-hmm. This this is fascinating. And I think, you know, your multifaceted approach really also helps you think about political mobilizations and how people react to broader social change. Um, For example, in the book, we see what you call competing dispositions, uh, which give rise to multiple political mobilizations. So could you tell us what competing dispositions refer to and... Can you also elaborate on what happens to politics when dispositions are in competition? What are the limits and possibilities of political mobilization um, that competing dispositions give rise to? Right. Um, so, you know, when I was doing fieldwork for this uh, research, I was uh, pretty much witnessing um, these moments of mobilization. And I was witnessing the process of in which uh, you know, organizations were uh, being literally crafted, uh, you know, from the start because of a particularly troubled history with it previously. So um, when when I refer to questions of competing dispossession, I'm really trying to point out to the fact that um, in the course of, you know, political mobilization, in the, in the course of, you know, uh, social movements and how they really play out, there can be a situation where um, different different communities of the dispossessed um, can in some ways be pit against one another. And when I say that, I am not attributing that to the movement. I'm not attributing that to a community. I'm attributing that largely to structural conditions uh, in mm-hmm. within which a movement sort of plays out and unfolds. Right? Um, and so there, I, I, you know, uh, when one sort of, again, pays closer attention to it, you realize that in the course of political mobilization, 
right? Um, there are, of course, all kinds of strategic choices that that are made, right? Uh, it's impossible to uh, to be involved in politics and in in movements and you know address every single question or every single cause that there is. So, strategic choices are made, priorities are exercised, right? Um, but that is not a form of competing dispossession. So that is not what I'm referring to. Uh, what I want to sort of draw attention to when I talk about competing dispossessions is a form of politics that is built around an idea that necessary trade-offs have to happen for politics to proceed, for mobilization to happen. Uh, and I think these are two very different kinds of uh, forms of politics. These are two very different orders of organization and the, the strategies that they use uh, are are sort of very, very distinct from one another. Uh, and the notion of competing dispossession enters in the latter, in, in the form of politics where the necessary trade-off is made to seem uh, absolutely central and vital for that kind of politics to survive. Uh, and of course, you know, when I say this, I'm again pointing to the fact that these are not actually existing trade-offs that have to happen. Um, and that is what I mean when I'm trying to think about the limits of, of a certain kind of, uh, you know, position that, that uh, competing politics sort of, uh, competing dispossessions really allows for. Um, because there are necessary limits to it in terms of thinking about um, what kind of solidarities are made possible, what kind of uh, allyship is made possible, you know, what are the, the wide range of political positions that one could take if you are beginning from a point of trade-offs and and pitting a community with against another, um, then it is, like I mentioned earlier, literally the fact you're like sort of translating into politics the fact that a right can only be secured at the cost of another. Uh, and that is made to seem as a necessary trade-off that has to be made in the course of doing politics. Right? Um, but of course, when, when one looks very closely at what was happening in, um, you know, in Mumbai with the Kohli community, uh, and with the kinds of different kinds of organizations, political organizations, um, including political parties that were part of it, you know, if one traces that history, then it becomes evident that competing dispossession is not the only route. Uh, and, you know, a necessary trade-off is not the only route. It is entirely possible to conduct uh, politics built around, um, you know, uh, wider solidarities being created, around allyship being created, uh, while still center staging the interests of of a community because they have been subject to a history of marginalization they have been subject to processes that continue to to dispossess them right uh, so th that is what i was thinking in terms of the the limits of competing dispossession uh, and if i was to think about the the possibilities in it uh, then it is only possible really i mean the the political possibilities really only open up if you are to think about it as a form of strategic prioritization that is not coming at the cost of another, but that is simply about what is possible in the immediate mm -hmm. circumstances. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. And this brings me to my next question about the commons. So, you know, in contexts like Mumbai's shores, where the city rapidly transforms, markets are made, and politics is ever more fractured, as you so beautifully explained us. Um, what of the urban commons? How does the case of Mumbai's fishing communities complicate or expand the idea of urban commons? 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Again, thank you for that question. Um, <laughs> it's, it's again, like really useful as a way to, an entry point to think about the commons again. And I think, um, you know, the Kohli community's uh, life, livelihood, living, work, all of it right, really speaks in some ways um, to, is a testament to the commons, really. Right, and I think uh, when we look at the commons in a city like Mumbai, particularly, you know, where it's land-starved or it's a very densely populated city, uh, you know, the commons seem like an anachronism. Like it seems like a relic from the past, uh, and there have been concerted attempts at sort of um, literally wiping them off the map, uh, and yet they persist. Yet they continue. Uh, that speaks, I think, definitely to a certain resilience of both the commons and the communities uh, that keep them alive. Um, but I don't want to romanticize this either and make it seem like, you know, this is, um, you know, that again, that they are those figures who have always depended on it, who will always continue to depend mm-hmm. on it. Because the Kohli's, um, much like any other community that inhabits Mumbai, are, um, you know, subjects of this modern city. They are looking to change, they have aspirations that may actually lead them to a path outside of the commons. Um, so it is, a, it, again, it is a complicated sort of situation and a complicated uh, history for the community to navigate as well and a complicated present for them to navigate as well. Um, but I think what is very interesting is that when we look at the commons in Mumbai and if, you know, in many ways I'm looking at the sea as a part of the commons. This is really the commons and the police are claiming. I also think it's a very uh, different kind of common in that sense. Uh, it's not a common over which the community has sort of exclusive um, access or exclusive control. Um, you know, there are all kinds of implications with the sea, um, economic, social, uh, you know, in, also in terms of national security, for instance. So the state mm-hmm. plays a very important role um, in terms of the seas and how, you know, they are regulated and legislated. Um, uh, you know, the, there are all kinds of laws at work. Again, not just national laws, but also because you have international waters. So you have another set of, you know, uh, other kinds of players that we are really looking at. Uh, so the seas are a, are a complicated form of the commons, right? And yet this is the form of the common that has been most central in defining um, community identity, community life and livelihood. Uh, and this is a common over which uh, they have built you know, a, a sort of long practice of uh, livelihood and labor. They've built a long, they've established regimes of use that have, you know, changed, undergone changes over a period of time. Um, so I think what 
looking at the Kohli community and their, you know, their, uh, uh, their sort of interrelationship with the commons allows us to do is really to think about the ways in which uh, the commons contribute also so much to the city, you know, via the relationship mm-hmm. again with the community. Uh, they are, again, such a central part of, of the city and that urban imagination, even if urban policy and planning doesn't really see uh, a whole space for them. Uh, and, you know, over the last few years, environmentalism has become... Uh, in some ways, a mainstream concern. It's become a question that a large number of people do think about, a large number of young people think about and talk about. Um, and, of you know, it, it's been an important and vital shift to happen. Um, but I think what the the relevance of the work that the Kohli community does, uh, in both politically and, and, you know, through their social existence, is also the fact that they, uh, you know, they, they tie the question of the commons and its link to the urban, not just in terms of, you know, the environmental discourse alone, right? So not just by saying that, uh, you know, keeping the urban commons alive is vital uh, for, you know, building, let's say, a green city or, or like making a city uh, climate change uh, adaptable and sustainable and so on and so forth. But I think it's also about really reflecting and, and foregrounding the fact um, that social life, right, that labor, that that economic contributions are also rooted through the commons, even though we imagine that in a city like Mumbai, that will not happen. And I think that's definitely the case for a large number of urban commons when we think about it. Um, but in Mumbai, in particular, where... Um, you know, the, the physical terrain of, of the place doesn't allow us to think that, you know, huge commons are possible, even as the seas, uh, you know, surround it. Uh, and I think really the politics of the Kohli community has pushed this agenda to say that the commons are vital for all kinds of reasons mm-hmm. and not just the, the limited reasons that possibly circulate in certain kind of political domains. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, This is very fascinating. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your methodology that led you to these um, insights. So I love that the your methodology kind of mirrors your theoretical framework. And you discuss that gender and mobility play an important role in how you did this research. Um, so could you speak to how you positioned yourself and how you moved through your fieldwork? Absolutely. So, um, I mean, it was important for me and I think in many ways doing any kind of fieldwork makes you, uh, you know, rethink and, and sort of focus and be reflexive about your own position and <laughs> the way in which you negotiate the field, right? Um, but um, it was very evident to me right at the start that... Um, gender was going to be something that I focused on. And initially, the idea of that was just that um, I really wanted to, again, within, you know, a larger um, sort of question about the uh, marginalization or the erasure of the Kohli community itself, um, I found a sort of subtext of the fact that Kohli women's work and Kohli women themselves um, were being either represented or not in very reductive ways or weren't, being represented in ways that they that they actually wanted to be. So um, the idea that I should focus on gender, for instance, you know, was important right at the start over there. Um, and of course, because I was looking at 
uh, movements. Um, and because the work itself, right, the labor of fishing or fishing related activities mm-hmm. itself requires this kind of understanding of mobility. I mean, it's built in, built around mobility, really. Um, both of these as sort of pegs for how, you know, the field had to be navigated was very evident at the start. Um, but I think what, um, you know, what that journey of and what that process of, uh, you know, ethnographic work and uh, navigating the field really allowed me to do was, of course, to be reflexive on my own position. And so then I, uh, you know, the ways in which certain spaces opened up for me um, was really sort of dependent on all kinds of, um, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of sort of, um, uh, no, let me reframe that. The way in which <laughs> the way in which I was able to navigate and and access the field um, came to came down to certain key interlocutors who I for you know I first met with uh, who kind of opened out certain paths for me. Um, it was very like again it was very central and important to me and to the work uh, that I actually try and understand uh, the larger fish workers movement as well. And, you know, key figures of that movement, um, you know, Mr. Rambhav Patil, who was the head of the National Fish Workers Forum at that point, for instance, um, thought very well of the university that I went to, for instance, right? And uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, allowed him, I mean, that sort of gave give me a certain kind of credibility, which he, which, uh, which allowed him to introduce me to all kinds of other movement spaces and you know, he spoke, for instance, of the, the fact that, you know, research was happening in this university on the community, on the movement, which was important. And, and I mean, that was invaluable in terms of opening up movement spaces for me. Right. Uh, so that that was one part of it. I had close friendships uh, with, um, you know, uh, friends who came from the community. So that opened up certain kinds of spaces. But um, I, you know, realized also very quickly that just as much as you know, gender and mobility were going to be uh, were going to have to be mapped onto the work I wanted to do. They were also going to sort of map themselves onto me, uh, and there were things that I could that I was going to be able to do, and there were things that I wasn't going to be able to do. Um, so I was not, for instance, able to form those kind of relationships that allowed me, for instance, to access the the world of fishing in the way that I could mm-hmm. access the world of uh, fishing related activities, for instance, you know, uh, the drying of fish, the curing of fish, the selling of fish from various mm-hmm. markets. And that was primarily because of the sex-based division of labor that is practiced where men go out to fish and, and women are doing uh, sort of post-harvest work. Uh, so because, you know, I identify as a woman, um, those spaces became much more available to me and I was really able to, uh, to understand those, inhabit those worlds for a little while. Uh, in a way that I couldn't do for, let's say, the the work of fishing and to understand the labor of fishing itself. Um, and in terms of uh, in terms of mobility, also that became a problem. So I mean, uh, I, I've written about this in the book as well about how you know just the ways in which fishing is done and the number of days that a boat goes out to sea and you know the ways it, the, the time that is spent and uh, all of those prove to be certain kinds of impediments in being able to access. Um, that form of work and to really understand it. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I had important figures who opened the place out, but there were also these kinds of uh, restrictions that, that emerged. But I, I think, um, 
you know, that's part and parcel of, of these processes of like understanding and inhabiting these kind of worlds, right? Where you, uh, where certain things do become more available and open mm-hmm. to access and understand and, and certain uh, things get closed off. Um, so I, I try to be, respect, you know, reflexive about that. I try to be mindful of that um, and acknowledge that very upfront that, you know, definitely this work could not speak to um, certain key interlocutors who would have been important. It would have been important, for instance, to speak to migrant male uh, fishers who participate in post-harvest work. Uh, but the ways in which that work is organized and, you know, uh, the inability to sort of uh, enter those mm-hmm. kind of uh, spaces and those kind of, uh, you know, uh, aspects of work uh, was a limit. So uh, that is something that I definitely wanted to be upfront about uh, right at the start, although I did struggle with it a lot, I, I have to say, during the process of research. Uh, it, it I, I felt that the work was incomplete in some ways because it couldn't capture that. Uh, but I think now upon some reflection, I think I've been able to access other parts of this world of work, which wouldn't have been necessarily available to me um, otherwise. And just in terms of also thinking about like how I navigated it, uh, you know, uh, it was really interesting during the process of my field work because one of my field sites um, I found was particularly initially difficult for me to gain access to and gain entry into. Uh, and you know, the, the reason for it was, I was this, of course, um, you know, random woman who was this suddenly um, going around <laughs> trying to sort of talk to people and get a sense of what is happening and, and hanging around there. Uh, and I was looked upon with a great deal of suspicion. And I found it was uh, a lot, you know, that the gaze of uh, was uh, far more um, uh, sort of concerned in, in one location vis-a-vis other kinds of field locations that I had. So I was curious mm-hmm. about why that was happening. Uh, and then I realized, uh, you know, thankfully very quickly, that one of these locations that uh, in which I was, you know, conducting my research um, happened to be a location that had, you know, sort of been involved um, in the sort of um, uh, the, the Bombay uh, terror sort of case that had happened, which is referred to popularly as, as the mm-hmm. 2011 case. Uh, so the boat that had brought in, uh, you know, these um, uh, brought in some of the people who participated in those uh, terror activities had landed right at this fishing village where I was. Uh, they were being surveilled quite heavily by the police. And so my presence there became particularly problematic for them because they felt that they would be implicated if, if something was to go wrong. Um, and so again, I found like, you know, being my identity as a student came quite in handy there because somehow people at that point, India, I think was slightly different. People were a bit disarmed by the idea of a young student. And so, you know, <laughs> I think my student ID uh, sort of settled and, and calmed people down. So yeah, all kinds of interesting things happen when you're, I think, navigating a field and, and figuring out how you should position yourself vis-a-vis your field, you know, which identity of yours, I think, becomes important as well. Yeah, th- this is fascinating. And I think, you know, what maybe at the time you saw as limits of your work have ultimately become the strengths of the book. Um, and, you know, you also mentioned that you sort of wanted to bring together sort of a grounded perspective together with um, sort of broader trends, maybe a more macro perspective. 
And, you know, as an anthropologist, I found your usage of qualitative and quantitative data together very refreshing. Um, so how did these modes of inquiry complement your research? And how did thinking both ethnographically and quantitatively enrich your theoretical and empirical approach? I have to confess, it was uh, entirely <laughs> something that I stumbled upon. Uh, this is not <laughs> the way I had actually anticipated what I would what I would actually end up doing. Uh, but um, you know, the, the I have been trained as a qualitative uh, sociologist, right? Um, mm-hmm. My educational training. I mean, we we've you know in Indian universities when you do sociology uh, or anthropology, you have of course some courses in in quantitative methods. Um, but, you know, by and large, the focus is on qualitative methods. I mean, we really come from that British social anthropology kind of tradition. Uh, and so the focus and the thrust was very much on qualitative methods. So um, I did not anticipate that I would actually end up using anything other than qualitative methods in my study. Um, but I think as I was doing my research and I felt that there were certain kinds of uh, changes that I wanted to kind of capture and, and, you know, and, and sort of, um, you know, detail, which I felt, you know, couldn't be quite uh, sufficiently done via the qualitative methods. Uh, and I think I owe this really to, again, my, you know, in my university interactions with people outside of my discipline um, and, you know, discussing with them about different kinds of methods that they bring to their work. Um, and that is really where I got the sense that perhaps, you know, quantitative methods are what are going to be useful mm-hmm. here to be able to capture this. Um, so, you know, I, I, for instance, use it to to discuss educational transformations and changes that have happened within the community. And uh, that began very much from a qualitative standpoint. So it was in the process of, you know, talking to people really about aspirations of work and, you know, what has been, um, you know, what have they found possible and what have they been limited by that question of education kept coming up. Uh, and given the fact that uh, this is a community that has been um, characterized and, and you know, hierarchically placed low in the caste order, right, uh, because of which this, they, they actually encountered impediments in the part of education. They were literally kept apart from, um, you know, and, and prevented an access to education. I, I knew that that was going to be an important feature uh, to understand, you know, the life world of the community. Um, but I felt that I needed quantitative methods there to be able to to explore what that transformation had been, because there was change, right? There was uh, a, a sort of upward uh, moving trend in terms of education. We could see very clearly that uh, younger generations were accessing change. Um, and I thought that what I could do was by combining those two, again, bring forth um, a detailed sort of granular view of what was really happening who can access education and what kind of education in a new uh, sort of context where education is an actual possibility, uh, but also then demonstrate or, you know, indicate what, you know, how significant the transformation actually has been. And for that broad brushstroke that I wanted to make, I think the quantitative methods proved to be very useful there. Uh, so not planned, entirely something that I landed <laughs> upon. Uh, and I was very fortunate that I actually had uh, friends who, who trained me once again in those quantitative methods and really helped me make sense, uh, you know, of that data that I actually collected. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I love hearing how, you know, our works aren't necessarily dialogical and relational, you know, like these um, important insights often come from collaborations both in and out of our fieldwork. Um, yeah, so yeah. that was wonderful to hear. Um, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions in which you're interested currently? So um, I'm actually, uh, you know, my, my starting point even for this research in many ways was really, as I mentioned, a focus on, on cities and, I, um, and labor and trying to think through cities from the position of labor. Uh, and so in many ways, like I'm continuing with that, but I've shifted gears a little bit. My current research is actually on looking at how um, digital technologies sort of operate mm. in the field of labor. Um, a lot of informal work in India, for instance, is happening now, particularly in big Indian cities, is happening through platform work, through the gig economy. Uh, and so my current research tries to, again, make sense of this by tying together the macro uh, narrative of what are those large <laughs> changes and shifts that are happening. Uh, and then also focus on the granular details um, of, you know, who is doing this work and what are the ways mm -hmm. in which this work, uh, you, you know, gets structured, uh, what are work conditions, what happens to the labor process itself when you have the intervention of these kind of digital technologies. So. I'm looking at geographically sort of bound forms of platform work. Uh, I look, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, uh, researching Uber drivers, Ola drivers, um, those who work in food delivery services, uh, women who work through platforms that provide beauty and spa work. Um, and through that, again, trying to make sense um, of the city, of labor, and what might the future of work really look like. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating, and we'll be um, looking forward to that work as well. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Nair, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you, Elise. This was an absolute pleasure. Of course, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you for being with us. I'm your host, Elise Arjan. This discussion of Set Adrift, Capitalist Transformations and Community Politics along Mumbai's Shores published by Oxford University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.